In these uncertain times, it can be hard to make sense of everything that is happening across the world today. This is why the registry continues to bring its grounded and informed news coverage of everything real estate, to keep you informed and better prepared to meet the challenges of the industry. We are able to deliver the reliable news you trust because of generous readers who support our work. Thank you to your commitment to journalism, especially now. And if you're not a subscriber yet, you can join us at theregistrysf.com in San Francisco and theregistryps.com in Seattle. Today we speak with John Cumbelich, the founder and chief executive officer of John Cumbelich & Associates. Headquartered in Walnut Creek, California, the firm has been responsible for several of the highest profile retail real estate transactions in Northern California since its inception in 2000. John has more than 30 years of retail real estate experience and has personally been involved in transactions totaling over $3.5 billion. He has successfully built one of the most respected retail real estate firms in the West and the leading independent retail firm in the San Francisco Bay Area. The firm focuses on the representation of premier retailers and restaurants, select high-profile retail centers, high street leasing, and investment sales in the Bay Area's premium retail submarkets. Welcome, John. John, good morning. How are you? Vlad, I'm doing great. Excellent. Where does this uh, podcast find you today? Uh, we are at the uh, world's headquarters, uh, John Cumberland and Associates in Walnut Creek. Excellent, excellent. So, uh, John, by way of uh, introduction, would you mind giving us a little bit of an overview of you know who you are, your company, what you guys do, what's your sphere of influence in the industry? Sure. Thank you for the question. Our firm is based in Walnut Creek. We're in the commercial real estate space, and more specifically in the retail commercial space. So, what that really has meant for the last 30 years is that we were in the suburban shopping center business representing owners, investors, and developers on leasing, purchasing, selling, or users on their um, acquisition and sometimes disposition needs. So we were in a, we have been in a very specific uh, segment of the commercial real estate space focused on uh, shopping centers, owners, users, and handling both lease and purchase transactions, sometimes with institutional clients, sometimes with local owners and investors. And our firm has been uh, in business now for 20 years. Prior to that, I worked for a dozen years for um, what you know was then and still is the largest brokerage company in the world, which was used to be called Coldwell Banker when I went to work there in 1988 and is today called CBRE. Great. And so you are based in Walnut Creek. Is your focus primarily then East Bay, or do you also work with clients across the Northern California region? Yeah, great question. So our office is based in Northern California, and I'd say that our primary market area is the nine-county Bay Area to a secondary, uh, our secondary market, if you will, would be uh, the greater Northern California market, which would include the Sacramento market, the Central Valley market, down to Monterey Peninsula, et cetera. But beyond that, we also have 35 partner offices across North America, primarily in the US, also in Canada. And our team is present in each of the 40 major metro markets around the country. So in some cases, we'll be uh, taking a client and uh, helping them 
grow into or find a service provider partner of ours in a, in a market like uh, Cincinnati or Dallas or New York, as the case may be, or likewise, some of our partners might have clients seeking to grow in Northern California, at which point they'll put the client in touch with me. So we work as a team on behalf of clients, primarily focused on our respective geographical areas, mine being Northern California, but in many cases, helping clients with their needs throughout North America. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. So, uh, John, being part of the retail world and in the retail world, obviously 2019 and maybe some of the years prior were, I guess, already challenging enough, right? I mean, this was probably one aspect of uh, the economy that was changing quickly and being impacted dramatically. But then COVID came and really disrupted things. Um, Give us a little bit of a sense of sort of where the market was, I don't know, December of 2019 and then how you know quickly things have evolved since then yeah it's a great question i think that there is a a, perhaps a misperception by the part of folks who are not in the trenches every day that what really happened was covid caused this uh, surge of store closures and unemployment and other uh, chaotic market conditions that have affected the economy therefore we're in this big mess really that was not the the key The key has been uh, this growing tide over the last several years of the rise of e-commerce. And what that rise of e-commerce has done to the shopping center world is it has taken these many catalyst anchor tenants who the entire industry had sort of organized itself around for the last 30 or 40 years. Walmart, Home Depot, Target, Lowe's, Best Buy, Kohl's, you know, round up the usual suspects. These are firms that had been growing and you know, one, one, one brand after another throughout both, you know, the Northern California market and other markets nationally. Yeah. And they became the uh, catalyst uh, for new shopping center development, um, which, uh, you know, city governments were very happy to uh, support uh, that um, vehicle as a means for growing sales tax revenues and and then there was a whole array of you know sub industries contractors engineers consultants uh, brokers who were able to make a living you know through this what happened by virtue of the rise of e-commerce or what has been happening is there's been this um, pivot by many of the aforementioned retailers to no longer have a big commitment to growing physical bricks and mortar stores but instead take their um, existing fleet, their inventory of stores, use those effectively as now as distribution points and try to seek their growth through the online side of the business, um, through their e-commerce platforms. And that's sending, sending shockwaves through an industry long accustomed to the physical growth of stores. So stores are still growing. These brands are still growing their retail sales. They're primarily shifting away from building more bricks and mortar facilities to building more of an online strength uh, and, and, and what you would call an omni-channel uh, model where they're selling both through the store and through the uh, online side of the business. And consequently, um, there's been this persistent ratcheting down of the amount of users who are active and um, the, the new shopping centers that were getting built. Clearly, we had reached a point by late 2019 where there was uh, chronic overbuilding in the United States. Yep. Um, re- retailers who were being eliminated from the scene 
whether that was um, the sports authority or Orchard Supply Hardware or Mervyn's department stores or many of the others that um, had departed the scene in the last year or two, Radio Shack, I could go on and on. Um, and at the very same time that um, um, fewer and fewer of uh, these brands, uh, or as more, more and more brands rather were exiting the scene, um, you had the, the brands that remained, uh, the Targets, the Walmarts, the Home Depots, the Kohl's, who weren't as building as many stores. So you were, we were starting to see by late 2019, more vacancy with fewer replacement tenants, a smaller tenant pool to backfill those vacancies. So we, we had gotten to a point clearly by late 2019 where we were just one crisis away from a major correction. Right. And in COVID, what you see is that major crisis and that correction where uh, all of these um, vulnerabilities have been brought into sharp relief. Yeah. And just as a way of comparison, um, you know, if you were to contrast the retail landscape in the United States with, say, some other maybe, you know, Western or, you know, Asian developed countries, is there a metric on, you know, square feet per people in the country? Uh, I, I've seen some anecdotes around that, that, you know, we are, you know, three, four times the number in terms of, you know, how much real estate there is per capita compared to some other countries. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, that's that's a that's a great observation. It's 100% accurate. We have the most retail per capita in uh, square footage of retail per capita in the United States of any country in the world, double the amount in Canada, quadruple the amount of retail per capita in this country that you have in Germany and some other uh, European nations. So we had reached a tipping point of overbuilding. Yeah which was sustainable when we were in a, you know, a 30,000 uh, Dow Jones industrial uh, stock market environment, buoyant growth, and, um, you know, a crisis-free economic uh, a paradigm that we were in. But, you know, we had a major crisis that's arrived in the form of this coronavirus, which has um, exposed the vulnerability of this overbuilding. So, um that is obviously a huge challenge. It's something that you've addressed in actually an article that you've published recently that we've also re republished on on our website that you know wh where you are addressing this in terms of now is the time to either you know rezone or uh, kind of re repurpose what is what is left over of you know retail. Just for the you know benefit of our audience, give us a little bit of sort of how you approach that thought and kind of where 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 your thinking was. I believe that uh, to, to make this simple for the lay person, we have an inventory, a fleet of retail shopping center space, primarily in the form of big box spaces for whom there is no logical large pool of replacement tenants. What we have is, an, is a paradigm that we're in now, which will continue to play out uh, for the foreseeable future in which supply has swamped demand. And not only has supply swamped demand, but there's no path forward for more big box retailers to appear on the scene and eventually absorb that supply. Yeah. And therefore, I believe that we are now in the early stages of what I've called an era of retail pruning. We're going to have to dial back the amount of square footage of retail that we have because with this paradigm shift in retailing to e-commerce, there is not going to be a next wave of major retailers that are going to absorb that supply that's out there. Consequently, 
what do you do with all this retail box space? Well, the way that we've suggested that uh, municipalities and owners are going to have to deal with this is really through one of three choices. They're going to have to repurpose that box. So maybe now instead of it being a, a 100,000 square foot single tenant box, maybe it gets sliced up into three spaces, five spaces or 10 spaces, still retail, but really going after a different audience. That's the repurpose option. Number two is the rezone, which is maybe it's not going to be retail at all. Maybe you're going to take that box and shift it to um, a community use, a medical use, an office use, or another use, um, which is a completely different form of uh, zoning in which a city is going to have to get involved. And then the third and the most radical is to completely replace it. So maybe instead of having a box of any kind there, whether it's a big box, or it's converted, repurposed to a multi-tenant box, or it's shifted to a non-retail box, it's replaced perhaps with vertical housing or some other densification of that site. These are among the tools that will be at the disposal of communities and owners in the era of retail pruning that we are now in the early stages of. How do you think the cities are going to react to some of this? You and I have probably attended you know, many city council meetings and planning commission meetings over the years, and uh, city councils love retail. <laughs> it's, it's one of those things that's you know, in, in every new project, whether it's residential or you know, commercial or you know, mixed use. Uh, do, do you think that the cities are, are going to readily sort of accept the new, the new reality and understand that they're going to have to allow for some rezoning to happen? relatively quickly? Yeah, it's, a, it's an important question. It's going to play out very inconsistently from one city to the next. And here's what I think is maybe a more important point. Cities, even the ones with uh, the most forward-thinking and uh, um, business-minded um, um, city staffs and city councils cannot move that quickly. You're, there are so many stakeholders that are involved in the process of changing how the city treats what has historically been a shopping center that I, I see this taking a period of not, not weeks, not months, but years, and in some cases, many years to play out in, in these various municipalities. What I've advised various uh, city managers um, and city staff members who've reached out to us for you know, our input on this question is, what I ultimately think is the uh, healthy and pragmatic way to approach these centers that are going to fall into um, a state of um, stasis while there's no replacement tenants to backfill them yeah. is to put a type of flexible zoning on these, what I'll call, what are today maybe your B and your C shopping center assets so that we'll let the market solve for What's the best solution here? Rather than trying to create some kind of a blanket uh, solution uh, where we say, well, we're going to shift it all to you know, an industrial use or housing use or medical use or an office use or whatever the case may be, what I would advocate for is creating flexible zoning over um, these um, uh, various uh, retail assets that really don't have a path forward if they're today a B or a C asset and let the market decide. Maybe there's a medical use that wants to come in. Maybe there's a sporting use that wants to come in. Maybe there's a, a housing use that wants to come in. And I, I would advocate and have advocated with cities for uh, employing flexible zoning uh, type of uh, overlays yep. to shopping centers to let the market help them decide. I think the other reason that it's going to take time is, Vlad, I believe that what we've seen consistently for the last century in, in this country 
is a plus or minus 25 year paradigm shift in how we retail and how we shop. Think about this for a second. Yeah. Pre-World War II, we were a main street shopping community. People would you know, go down to the, the local butcher or the local baker or the local uh, shoemaker, and they would do their shopping on main street. Post-World War II, you had the rise of the shopping center. This is where you had the grocery store and the parking lot and the other uses that would begin to congregate around that daily needs anchor. And that became a norm in the post-war years. Then you get to the late 60s and the early 70s, and you have the rise of the enclosed regional mall, where the department stores that had historically been on Main Street, uh, you know, these uh, historic brands, whether it was Sears Roebuck or Macy's or others, they moved to the big um, freeway location in the enclosed mall. Now, that happened in the uh, late 60s and early 70s. And fast forward another 25 years and you get into the, in the uh, 80s and 90s and you have the rise of the power center, which is a discount oriented um, project with outdoor parking that's not enclosed, which is where you some of the rise of the, the deep discounters, the Home Depots and the Walmarts yeah. of the world. Well. You go forward now uh, from the 90s into the you know the, the late teens and um, now the, the 2020s, and we're seeing the rise of e-commerce. So these are transitions, every one of which has been difficult for the communities that were invested in the way it used to be, right? Well, we're sure. very invested today in the way that it's been for the last 20 or 30 years, whatever the case may be, and we're in the midst of another paradigm shift. So that's going to take um, time. Uh, to be ad adapted. John, from, from your perspective, um, as you're seeing everything evolve today, which retailers are doing well, making it, not making it, and, and what are some of the causes of that, of that transformation? Great question, Vlad. What we're seeing in today's fast unfolding world of retail is that those retailers that historically had served the middle class the very retailers that are going, going, gone. Now that that audience, that target audience, the middle class, was the JCPenney audience. They declared bankruptcy. That was the Coles and the Macy's audience. Those are two uh, woefully struggling yeah. retailers who, who who may be looking at a bankruptcy in their futures. So this is really a powerful affirmation of this larger conversation that's been going on in the country about the shrinking middle class. And is there really a shrinking middle class? Well, if you look at the fact that those uh, middle class consumers were historically patronizing the JCPenney's and the Kohl's and the Macy's of the world, and those stores are going out of business, I think that's a very clear indicator that we do have a shrinking middle class. And e-commerce is also a reflection of that. You know, you think about how expensive it is for a middle class income family that's got maybe between a fifty and eighty thousand dollar household income or something like that to pay for two college tuitions and to try to retire a mortgage. Well, those numbers just don't work for those families. Um, and consequently, they are uh, looking for deep discounts. Uh, they're not shopping in that mid-tier store anymore. They're you know, looking for a bargain online. Uh, they're looking to shop with the deep discounter, maybe like a Walmart. And um, making ends meet for the middle class has become increasingly difficult. And we're seeing that play out in terms of the retailers yeah. that serve the middle class disappearing from the scene. How how far behind, and I, 
I think I know the answer, but I just want to ask you so that we can you know, inform the audience. Um, how far behind are we in terms of our e-commerce acquisition? And maybe if, if, if we can express that as a percentage of sort of overall buying. So I, I understand like in Asia, it's you know approaching 50% of everything purchased is online, right? I think in the US, we're still in maybe single, maybe teens, right? Um, what what's your impression and what what's your understanding and sort of how much further we can we can go? Well, that's a good question. I'm probably not smart enough to answer it. I would say that I'm going to answer this maybe in a in a, in, a, in a backhanded way. There is still a market and will be a market for good retail, good um, bricks and mortar retail. Part of that is going to be driven as we've been learning through this pandemic pandemic through essential services, yep. whether that's a grocery store or a pharmacy or a bank or a um, gas station or certain things that you just can't do online, whether that's getting, you know, your uh, the produce that you want to pick yourself off of the uh, shelf or, or, or go fill up your tank with gas or other things like that. Beyond that, there's the, there's the, there's the social aspect to it that people don't want to be locked up and do all their you know, shopping in front of a computer screen. There's the opportunity to have a little society and go out there and meet your neighbor. So um, I don't see bricks and mortar retailer, bricks and mortar retail going away. I see it shifting in a fundamental way as it has every 25 years or so for the last century or more. And uh, clearly the shift of retail dollars from bricks and mortar to online has been increasing and will continue to increase. Does it get to 25%? Does it get to 50%? Again, I don't think I'm smart enough to answer that question, but I am confident in saying that it will continue to grow yeah. that shift from physical stores to online for the foreseeable future. Yeah. So I, I don't want to only focus on the negative <laughs> aspects of what's happening in retail. I think there's a mm-hmm. there's enough of that going on. If you look at the retail landscape, let's focus on the positive, right? What what works in retail today and from from your perspective, you know, what are some of the attributes of successful retailers in the in the industry today? You know, there is disruption that's going on in the market right now. And whether you're talking about retail or any other business, there are entrepreneurs who out of clutter find simplicity. Um, You know, Einstein famously said, from discord, find harmony. In the middle of difficulty lies opportunity. I see retailers both in the um, essential and in the non-essential space really being nimble and adaptive to that. Uh, the, uh, the chairman of uh, RH, a formerly called Restoration Hardware, Gary Friedman, recently penned a beautiful article about how there's been this flight by many retailers to go online only because of, among other reasons, the fact that they would attract a lot of capital and uh, startup dollars yeah. um, if they could have that, if they could check those boxes. But that, that that's a little bit of a uh, puts a deaf ear to really what the consumer in the, in, the, in the long run wants, which is, yes, they do want to be able to shop and have the accessibility to learn about um, those uh, products online, but they still want to go visit the store. They want to kick the tires. They want to sit on the couch. They want to have that experience. So I believe that the, the folks who are doing it right and these, these success stories that you're talking about are the retailers who are really in more of what I'll call the omni-channel space. Um, We're seeing a lot of food retailers who have become very 
effective and adapting the mobile order tool yep. so that you can, you know, get your, your, your regular order on your device, go in and pick it up. And it's a, it's a very convenient um, experience that blends both the technology and the visit to the physical store. You've got other retailers like Walmart or PetSmart who five or 10 years ago were not in the e-commerce business at all. And they've um, been able to grow their businesses significantly through adding the online side. Meanwhile, at the very same time, you have Amazon, a company that five or 10 years ago had zero physical stores and was completely an online store who is aggressively now moving into the physical space. Yeah. Certainly that was um, accentuated by their acquisition of Whole Foods, but also the growth of the Amazon bookstores and other stores like Amazon Go that they've recently opened. So what you're seeing both in, in, in terms of the online retailers who are growing into physical and the physical retailers who are growing into online is the embrace of the omni-channel system, which is really, if you will, similar to what the Dunkin' Donuts of the world are doing by taking their physical stores and integrating that online consumer with the mobile order. So really the success stories to me are these uh, you know, thoughtful and clever entrepreneurs who have figured out to make both of them work and not be completely siloed into one or the other. So I, I think that omni-channel is really the path forward. Yeah, and and it sounds like also being very adaptable to the environment, right? Which certainly, that's right. Yeah, certainly today and these days, it's proving to be you know crucial for a lot of companies. Um, uh, John, as as you know, this is obviously not your first rodeo, and you've you've gone through at least you know several down downturns yourself. I think you know a feature of a successful company is that they you know look at opportunities like these as a way to you know innovate you know do some new things create new products services you know how has your company you know your your enterprise thinking how is it thinking about evolving what are you looking forward to in the in the next cycle and you know are there things that you are doing now that's you know preparing you to be a better company you know down the road five ten years from now Great question. We spent a lot of time thinking about this, Vlad. And I think there's, you know, generally two schools of thought on this. There's the those who look around at these chaotic market conditions and get incredibly worried and stressed because things aren't the way they used to be. And that's a natural reaction, which is understandable. But for me, change is our business. And uh, what we're getting truckloads of right now is change in the form of uh, you know, loans that aren't working because tenants aren't paying and there's a property that's going to go into receivership and uh, you're going to have certain sellers that need to raise capital or lenders who are going to have assets back on their books and they're going to need to sell. Well, they're going to need a broker for that. And you're going to have at the same time very opportunistic buyers who put a lot of dry powder in the bank over the last uh, this great run that we've this great bull market that we've had for the last 10 years and they've been waiting for a buying opportunity and they're going to need a broker for that you're going to have spaces that become vacated through all of this uh, turmoil in the market and those spaces are going to be need to be released and somebody's going to need a broker for that change is our business and we're in a market environment right now where i'd say for the, the the short window of time that we're in today, you know, in June of 2020, the market's in a little bit of a deer in the headlights waiting for you know, values to adjust. Yeah. And there's not a lot of transactions happening, but that's going to change. Really, the business that I feel like a firm like ours is in today is acquiring market share. And I don't care if you're in the real estate brokerage business or any business, my experiences in good mark in, in, in bad markets good firms acquire market share 
so that when the market is ready to transact again, we're really well positioned with those, um, you know, those active buyers, those, the, those sale listings, those leasing listings that, we're, that we've positioned ourselves to um, help those buyers and navigate the change that's upon all of us. So as unsettling and disturbing as all of the change can be, if you really look at it unemotionally, frankly, the biggest problem that we had for the last two or three years is all the space was leased, rents were at record highs, it was tough to make deals pencil because either there, A, there wasn't a lot of space, or B, if it was available, you couldn't afford it. Well, suddenly there's a whole bunch of space available and rents have softened and uh, be careful what you wish for right. because um, you know now there's this uh, you know chaotic market environment, but that's got to be viewed in a, in a to a certain degree positively because of the opportunities that are being created. Yeah. Are you anticipating in the brokerage community to see some consolidation across the industry? That's a good question. That was already happening pre-COVID-19. I think that what I expect is uh, you're going to see individual brokers who uh, react well and make it. And you're going to see individual brokers who can't solve for the fast-changing times that we're in. Whether that translates into the, the firms with which they work, consolidating or not, gosh, it's a great question. I feel like there's been so much um, fundamental change in the brokerage business, certainly in the last 20 years, where we went from a model that you had many large institutional firms that dominated the business, the Coldwell Bankers, and going back several years ago, the Grubb Analysis, the Cushman Wakefields, and the Colliers, to a paradigm today where there's many smaller boutique firms, of which ours is an example, and that's played out in markets all across the country, uh, just like it has here in Northern California. So I think that the firms generally that you see out there that have been successful are frequently led by you know, uh, veteran folks who've been able to weather many of these storms and know how to navigate the crises. So I think that the, the playing field in terms of brokerage is already um, sort of evenly distributed between both sort of the institutional and the strong regional and boutique firms. Do I expect there to be consolidation? I guess I don't expect it, but I won't be surprised if I see it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. So as we wrap this up, John, I do want to, again, leave on kind of a positive note. So as you look into the rest of 2020, and maybe it's too early for 2020, but maybe 2021 and beyond 2022, you know, what inspires you about the industry? What, what's, what, what do you think is hopeful and what should uh, you know, our, our audience be looking forward to? It's easy to focus on what's no longer working the way it used to, and it's harder to see that this isn't just a time of endings, it's also a time of new beginnings. You know, the people who, when Main Street shifted away to shopping centers didn't see that. When the shopping centers gave way to the regional malls, the folks who were invested in the mall didn't quite see that. And then when the power centers took the thunder from the department stores and the regional malls, people didn't see that too. We're at another one of those inflection points right now. And it's easy to see what we're letting go of. It's not quite so easy to see what we're about to be embracing. But I fully believe that this is a time of new beginnings. Retail is going to look different. There's going to be less of it. That means there's going to be more other uses that get into retail spaces. Uh, those are that are to, you know that are non-retail uses um, that are going to create more of a mixed-use environment. And uh, there's going to be a whole interesting array of redevelopment opportunities where we're going to be able to bring housing closer to retail and other services, whether that's the office building or the medical. I think what we're going to see in some part is not only 
a, a rise of more mixture of uses, but a densification of projects yeah. where you're bringing services, uh, an array of services all closer to one another, uh, more closely knit together. And then all of that on the physical side is going to be knit together with how people access their office space or their retail store via their you know online um, device, whether that's uh, from the comfort of their home or from their smartphone when they're, uh, you know, wherever they are. So I see this really as a, a fascinating era of new beginnings where there's going to be a, a transition to more densification, more mixture of uses of retail pruning, but that's going to create opportunities um, that I can't, you know, perfectly foresee nor can anybody else, but it's sort of fun and exciting to be a part of it. Um, and I think we just have to embrace it. I agree. I agree. Well, John, thank you so much for your time. Very thoughtful of you to share your interest in the industry and kind of what is what is happening. Um, stay safe. Thank you very much. 